Welcome to the study of purpose. This is Riley Kufner reporting to you from Santa Monica, California. And what a lovely day it is. Feeling like summer out here. And uh, yeah, I'm wishing everybody the best. I'm here today actually interviewing my co-host, Aaron Feigelman. Aaron, how are you doing? Hey, Riley. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Another another weekend is upon us. Got to do the, the weekly podcast. It's what I look forward to, man. It's a great way to start the weekend. Indeed. Yeah, I'm enjoying it as well. So uh, where are you calling in from today? And uh, what have you been up to? Oh, I'm over in uh, the usual space, Benicia, California, the one and only. I'm, uh, let's see, just been enjoying taking a lot of walks. Look at the California poppies. They're blooming, man. They're blooming. I'm not sure if you've seen them outside, but they're just blowing up and it's beautiful. That's Um, awesome. Yeah, I've been taking a lot of walks, just working on the, the business stuff. The usual. What about you? Also enjoying the day. Yeah, it's beautiful out here. Yesterday I was participating in a pitch competition pretty much all day for the UC Berkeley Launch Accelerator. It was their final demo day and we were one of the you know, final 10 teams that were competing for some cash prizes and we actually won. We won the best pitch presentation. So that was a great thing and um, we got a you know, $5,000 cash prize and uh, yeah, it was a good experience. Hell yeah. Are you going to celebrate? Just keep it working. Yeah, I can't celebrate too soon. Yeah, indeed. A lot of work left to do. Nice, yeah. That's, it must be good, though. It must feel good to just you know get that get those little wins here and there. Fuels the fire. Fuels the flames. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you know what I have in my life, and it's you know, fantastic. And so I'll, you know, take that for what it is, but there's certainly a lot of work left to do so that I can share these gifts with others. And that's the ultimate goal. Amen. Amen, brother. All right. Well, cool. So today's not about me though. It's about you. And I'm looking forward to getting to learn a little bit more about your experiences as we start this podcast. I liked our conversation last week when you were interviewing me. And I actually went down um, some thought paths that I hadn't considered in a long time. And it was a good learning journey for me. So I feel like it made me a better person. Yeah, I could see that you were saying some things, you know, about your life and thinking about things that you haven't thought about maybe in years. So it was almost a, it's a bit of a growth experience for you, I'm sure. Like, it's kind of cool to to self-reflect on on the past, especially when you're so people were so caught up in the moment and the future, the past gets kind of thrown out of the bus and there's a lot, you know, a lot to appreciate. Indeed. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your past, you know, and, and where you come from. And so where were you born and like, what was uh, your experience like growing up? Yeah, I was born um, in 1997 in, in Richmond, California, in the Bay Area, not too far from Benicia, uh, not too far from where you were born in uh, Marin. And um, yeah, parents moved pretty much to Benicia within the year I was born. So um, grew up there and lovely town, Benicia, man. It's like this little kind of town in the Carquina Straits that, uh, you know, it's sort of an inlet to the uh, bay and just very beautiful. uh, And gave gave me a great appreciation for the environment. Um, a lot of rolling hills, close, fairly, you know, not that far from Tahoe. Um, you know, go, go to places like Marin that are absolutely gorgeous, not too far away. So, yeah, I was born. My I have two older brothers and um, my parents, 
had a pretty, you know, pretty typical suburban life growing up. Nothing too crazy happened to me. Very, very, very fortunate to not have, uh, you know, moving around too much. Had a pretty stable childhood. Yeah. Well, I know that your brothers are a good amount older than you, right, Aaron? So how much older are they? Yeah, they're 16 and uh, 14 years older than me. They're from my dad's previous marriage. So what's cool about that is that like when I was a child, baby, they were going from childhood to adulthood. So I could kind of see a preview my whole life of what life could be like in 10 to 20 years. And it was something I kind of take for granted for sure. Like it just seems normal to have that in your life. But like when I was, like I remember when I was like a child, one of my earliest memories actually is my brother like starting university, uh, going to UC Berkeley. And um, it just seemed like that was, you know, these normal paths that people take. And, you know, I got to see their mistakes. I got to see their successes and see kind of like, okay, I can do that, not do that, that kind of thing. Um, and it was also, but it also had also, you know, them being much older than me, it felt almost like I was an only child at times because that didn't make gap. But, and honestly, like it's since I've kind of become an adult, I've really very, very recently been able to kind of be on the same level as them because, you know, when you're like 17, it's still kind of hard to relate to people that are like old, older than like 20 <laughs> on average, you know? Sure thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so what do you think some of the more important things you learned from those guys were? Hmm. Honestly, like, you know, I think uh, that's a hard question. I mean, that you can kind of, you can, you can basically, you know, I have one brother that kind of like went on like a kind of like a different sort of spiritual journey after high school where he like went to India and uh, like studied like about like the, the you know, Hindu uh, religion and lived like in a commune. So, and I saw another brother was much more like a, like a scientist that like went to UC Berkeley. So I got to see kind of, you know, you can live multiple types of, unconventional and conventional lives and still be happy. So it show it really showed different options and like both are viable. So it, if anything, opened up the doors for possibilities for me. Cool. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I don't hear that very often, actually. Do you think that that influenced your path that you took today, like doing the entrepreneurship route at all? hundred percent. I mean, my, my dad, I think the reason that my brothers did what they did and what I'm doing, what I'm doing, some some parts conventional some parts unconventional is my dad is exactly that i mean like my dad was a very much like a hippie in the 19 you know growing up born in los angeles and um was really a hippie had long hair um you know was he did like a bunch of like he did a lot of protesting uh he hitchhiked around canada like for months uh he hitchhiked across the entire united states for months and just kind of lived like an alternative life and then was an artist, took a uh, pottery, did pottery for a while, throwing pots, lived like kind of an artist life until like his, you know, and then became a carpenter at one point, just kind of danced around. And then, you know, then he started his business as a psychi- uh, uh, psychotherapist and does great. So it was the kind of thing where it's like, you don't have to have it figured out right now, like totally, you know, following this straight line path to be happy and successful. Like, I think that's something that people, a lot of people, um, our age think that we kind of have to do and yeah so, that's fascinating yeah and he was definitely like both my parents were definitely kind of the hippie types so and that's one of the reasons I think my brothers one of my brothers kind of did the, kind of like the hindu religion thing my dad was into that for a while i think with his, uh, his previous wife so it 
kind of, yeah, there's a long line of like a little bit artistic kind of non-conventional thinking. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, it sounds like your dad's quite the guy. He's lived an adventurous life. Yeah, we should have him on, man. That would be sweet. That would be sweet. Yeah, we definitely should. We should do a little uh, addition where we can talk to our folks. That'd be pretty funny, actually. Yeah, I I think they'd be interested. Um, But yeah, but then my mom also, like, she's like a very much like an environmentalist, like, had me like recycling and being very much like she had all these t-shirts that were like recycle, reuse, all these things constantly. So like, and my dad has always been really into backpacking and the outdoors. So I kind of got brought all along with that as I grew up and it just seemed natural. Any notable stories from growing up, hanging out with your parents, uh, crazy stuff go down? Um, nothing, you know, honestly, I mean, fortunate, nothing too like nothing scarring or anything. I mean, uh, the only really positives when it comes, I mean, as it relates to sort of my path currently. Um, oh yeah. I remember one of the kind of scarier slash like, but also really like kind of amazing stories that my dad and I had together was in the wilderness and, um, the Sierra Nevadas. my dad took me backpacking probably like six, seven years ago, maybe less five or six years ago. One of our first times backpacking together, maybe our, maybe one of our last two, <laughs> uh, is what happened. we, we took this really like kind of pretty shitty trail. Just I'm going to straight up call it. It was a shitty trail, like horribly marked, not really well used. The, the, you know, when you, when you go backpacking, typically want to go talk to the ranger beforehand and see what trails are good to go on. Um, and we did. And she said, yeah, you can do this one. But like, like there was heavy rains this season, the winter before this time period, which is in the summer. And we, uh, you know, we got it, we got, we got out of this trail and then we decided to, the trail was good and all. And then we camped out and we decided we would just camp there and we would day hikes for uh, the, the, the next couple of days, just day hikes from that camp. And we, so we, when we did day hikes, we would never bring anything with us. We'd just bring like, like one couple, like one thing of water, like nothing in case anything bad happened. And we uh, ended up like going pretty far out one day and we just got completely lost, like off the trail. And this is like in the middle oh, of the no. forest in the Sierra Nevadas where it gets like freezing at night. And I remember like, it was like two or 3 PM and we realized we were off the trail and we just had no fucking clue like where it was. And we, at first I remember we were like, Oh, like we'll figure this out. And my dad's pretty experienced at backpacking. So he backpacked a lot in his life. So I was like, okay. And then he started like panicking and I'm just like, Oh shit. Like if he's panicking, like this is going to be bad. Like he was like, all right, we, <laughs> we started getting dark and um, we were like contemplating what we we're going to do, like how we're going to like, how we're gonna like not freeze that night so we ended up just like running around for like three or four hours just trying to find really like retracing our steps and finally we fucking found the trail and um it just felt so good man i was like so grateful to find that trail and, you know, <laughs> that's it was, amazing it was a uh, it was the last time i went backpacking with my dad <laughs> <laughs> sounds like quite the experience it was a good father-son bonding experience you know solving problems real problems yeah Indeed. You got to hang in there. Can't panic. You just got to find the trail. Got to find the trail. Yeah. So that was a pretty, that was a pretty cool experience. Um, I also have some, you know, some pretty important experiences. I think that really shaped me to be the guy that I am today. Um, but you know, outside of my, you know, the, the parenting that my parents provided, I guess you would say my parents were very like willing to, uh, very willing to support me and whatever I wanted to do, um, whether it be sports, but then in, in like early high school, 
I started getting really into like climate change. I thought this is such an important problem that needs to be solved. And I sort of had this realization when I was, yeah, probably freshman in high school. And I realized, you know, I want to focus a lot of my rest of my life on this topic because it's such a big problem that our generation needs to figure out. And um, my, I, I, I want to do some summer programs that involve this. So I ended up going to um, this amazing summer program when I was a junior. It was called Sustainable Summer. And we went to Ecuador. It was like me and about 10 other high school students from across the country went to Ecuador and sort of explored the Amazon rainforest as well as the cloud forest. And we were led by this awesome founder of this organization named Jeff Sharp. And it was a kind of like an outward bound thing where we were just kind of, we were pushed outside of our comfort zone like to the max, honestly, like pretty dicey situations we got ourselves into. Um, including like hiking up like crazy terrains on our hands and knees with like like machetes like cutting the rain like <laughs> making our own trail and like getting super lost in the rain like in the cloud forest. Um, we sounds dangerous. It, it, at the time, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And then after, I was like, wow, like that's pretty dangerous. <laughs> I have a, I have a memory of like. Uh, yeah, we hiked up these massive cliffs and we literally were hiking up waterfalls at times. Like people were like rock climbing up waterfalls with no, with like almost zero, <laughs> almost no like uh, uh, security, zero, zero, like, uh, you know, security precautions. So I'm surprised people didn't get hurt. We felt we like went bike riding on like roads that were like paralleling cliffs and uh, like with like 15, 20 people, like, or maybe like 15 people on, on bikes. And the tires were popping, people were falling off. I was reading my journals this morning from my experiences there. And like, I was like talking about how I tripped a girl and she fell and hurt herself. Oh, <laughs> no. Like, gnarly. <laughs> but we just kept on rolling with the punches. Like, no one was like angry or like, we were just going, just exploring like Ecuador. It sounds kind of crazy, but like, thinking about it now, it really was like, really put me out of my comfort zone. Like, no one like got seriously injured. Like, mine i think the guy severely sprained his arm but recovered you know um and then like the most powerful experience honestly yeah it's not the worst of injuries yeah it's not the worst and the most powerful experience was a couple things we got to go to these amazing waterfalls in the rainforest that were just something that you know it's you can't find here i mean okay niagara falls is pretty epic but it was like completely isolated with nobody there these massive waterfalls just like such powerful examples of just like of what nature is, 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 it can, can make. And, um, just really cool exploring these waterfalls, seeing these different like hydroelectric dams that they're building in the rainforest there, which are a little iffy politically at the time. I was like, this is really cool. But now I'm like, Hmm, I'm not sure how cool that is. The hydroelectric mm -hmm. dams can have some, you know, some negative effects on the climate, especially with the wildlife. But the thing, the most profound thing that happened to me there was I, I became friends with a, a, an actual junk, a jungle guide. We had our this jungle guide who took us around the jungle, um, and he we, he and I kind of he kind of confided in me. And I was like a seventeen year old, sixteen year old kid. He confided in me that like he was like Aaron, like you're really really lucky that you're able to travel and, and do things. Like I you know I'm like a thirty something year old man. I have a you know masters in English, and I'm a jungle guide because there's no opportunity here. I make no money. I make like $600 a month and I can't leave even if I wanted to. You, you should really, really like 
they said to me, you should really like cherish your, your background because you're super lucky. And I don't know. I never thought about it. That's really cool. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you don't really think about unless someone else tells you, especially when you're from a place like America. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think it's important to have those types of experiences so that you can really understand what other people are all about, what uh, is going on in different parts of our world, because it really can be quite different. And I love traveling. I've traveled to many places, fortunately, and also had the opportunity to do some stuff like that growing up. I was really lucky. Uh, And I, I actually think that was one of the greatest things that shaped who I am today because I got to see how other cultures live. Right. And it inspired in me a personal curiosity about what's going on with these people over here, you know, and, and totally. what's different about what they're doing. How are their ideas different? How are we the same in many ways? And I think that it really helps build perspective and empathy for all different types of people. And I think when it comes to climate change, like this topic of climate change and environmentalism, it gets such a, you know, like, like this virus we're experiencing right now, it's very much a, it's not us versus them. It's everyone's in this together because we're all interconnected. And if you've never really been outside of the United States or interacted with people from other cultures, it feels like us versus them because you've never even really, it, it's, it's, it feels almost, you know, not, it doesn't feel real if, if, if this is all you know. So I really think it broadens your, right. your perception and uh, empathy. I totally, totally agree with you. Yeah, I think that's really great. And so what other kind of travel experiences have you had that you think may have shaped your perspective in that kind of way? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to uh, – Ecuador was huge to see like just how amazingly biodiverse this world can be. And just – I mean, in Ecuador, the Amazon rainforest, and just millions of, you know, all these different species of insects, plants, it just – was incredible it was so loud such a loud place because there's so many insects chirping and all these sounds it was incredible just so much life and energy and really kind of like an opposite place i went to was um like india my brother got married in india when i was in high school and i went there for about a month to the to the wedding and it was cool my, my teachers in benicia were very very relaxed about me just leaving for a month during school that's a long wedding. It was a long way, man. And it was such an experience as well. Like India is just so different than here. It's just like, these are extremes. Right? Like, like, like rainforest is extreme, extreme nature. And then India was just like extreme opposite of the way civilization works here in, uh, in America typically. And, you know, you saw extreme poverty mixed with extreme wealth. And that really just shaped my, like I had no clue it's the kind of thing like when you go to India, it's hard to sort of like describe it without you just going. There's also just so much energy, so much life, so many people, just, just so much going on. It's just so chaotic. Um, and just show me another part of the world, man. I think I think it honestly just by seeing more of the world, it just opens up your your willing to your willingness to be flexible and be open to things that are different than the normal. Totally. And so based on these experiences that you had exploring and seeing the world, how did those you know, things that you learned while out there influence your life today? Did you take any of that back to your everyday life? Absolutely. Well, everyday life, I think, you know, a couple things. So I think everyday life, sure. 
um, as well as just overall goals in life. So everyday life, a lot of the issues that we have are, are really just not not shit compared to what people are facing in the other countries. Like straight up, like you know, we'll be, you know I'll, I'll be annoyed about you know the TV remote doesn't work. <laughs> And or like Wi-Fi is not working, and you know, right. yeah, like I told you about this guy like in in Ecuador who I became friends with. Like, he can't really, he can't really, he has very little opportunity in Ecuador to do whatever he wants to do. Really, anything that like, I mean, there's like no jobs for him, so he has to be like a you know jungle. And it sounds kind of epic, like being like a jungle, um, like explorer, but it's not. It it's not as cool as it sounds because he really wanted to be doing something completely different. He wanted to be working in education, and he just couldn't make money doing that. So yeah. That just kind of like it kind of sobers you, especially in India when you saw a lot of poverty. Like that definitely was sobering. But regarding like overall kind of goals, yeah, it's, Ecuador is especially powerful because of the mentorship I received from the leader of the of this program, who sort of encouraged me to pursue solar, uh, like pursue uh, working on solar initiatives when I, in my hometown as well as just he kind of just pushed me to to believe that I can do whatever I want. Well, and how did you do that? Yeah, so the, so at the end of this the summer program, which I mean, I wish everybody can experience the summer program. I thought it was so cool. Um, at the end of the summer program, each student was uh, like tasked with developing a, a master plan of how they can make their communities back home in the states more sustainable, whether it be through composting initiatives, uh, gardening, or solar. Now, you know, solar was definitely the more cost intensive out of all the ones mentioned. It's probably the, one of the most impactful ones as well. Installing solar panels—they're not cheap. Um, although they're becoming a lot cheaper, they're still not cheap. So I told him, I'm like, hey, you know, my solar, my uh, school district doesn't have any solar panels, and um, we're in California. Like, the thing's kind of backwards, right? And he was like, yeah, like you should go out there and get solar panels all over your school district. And I was like, well, I'm just like a 17-year-old. Like, how am I going to do that? He's like, you can do it. You got to just get the people together. And he just like fired me up to do it. So I went back home. Um, after I returned from Ecuador and just like got a research, you know, what it takes to do to get solar going. Kind of, I got a bunch of teachers involved um, in my high school, some friends from Key Club that I was uh, president of and some parents and sort of created this coalition of people to rally for solar panels being installed across the district. So that was a pretty like, it kind of got me fired up. And then for the next four years, uh, up until 2018, I worked kind of remotely while I was in college on getting these solar panels installed. So I worked with the superintendent of the of the school district, even got some of the uh, city councilmen together. It just was kind of a slow, you know. It taught me that you know things get done, but it takes time. It takes perseverance. It takes um, persistence and patience more than anything else. Totally, the three P's. That's it. Three P's. Totally. Well, that's a really cool story, and I think it's pretty incredible how much that you know guide that you had on your experience in Ecuador influenced you, and that really makes me feel good. I mean, that's what an educator is all about or a mentor is all about, and I'm glad that he was able to inspire something in you so that you could go and create some real change. And so, you know, it makes me really happy to hear a story like that, and I suppose that he's also then responsible for, you know, us meeting each other. Because the only reason we met each other is because you joined the Solar Decathlon group at UCLA. Totally. Yeah, you could say that's true. Like, I mean, I got really into solar because of him and, and I met you through it. So true. Thank you, Jeff. 
<laughs> Indeed. Yeah. We got to meet this guy, Jeff, sometime. Have yeah. a few beers. Oh, hell yeah. He lives in Brooklyn. So if we're ever out in Brooklyn, we got to reach out. Okay. Prime, prime. And so, you know, I think that that was really cool, you know, learning about your experience in high school, installing those solar panels. And so, you know, tell me about when that project was finally um, completed, because it was pretty recently, right? Yeah, 2018, uh, January. So how long did it take? How many years before when you first came up with the idea and when it was completed? So... I had the idea in July of 2014 and I started then and then it was completed in January of 2018. So a little less, about three and a half years. Um, and That's not so bad. It's actually not that bad, right? When I started it, I basically was like, okay, I'm just a kid. Right? I can't, I mean, sure they can listen to me, but they're not going to take me seriously. And especially because I don't have the background in solar. So I, I don't really like know, I can't just like tell them do X, Y, and Z and then you know, you'll be done. So I knew I had to find some experts to get on my team. And uh, I found some, like a, like a nonprofit in uh, Berkeley, California, run by a guy named Tom Kelly. And the, the nonprofit was called Helios Project. And basically what this nonprofit does is it works with, uh, works with schools, public schools all around the country to get their um, campuses filled with solar panels. And they help them with the sort of like free counseling, free advice. So I roped him in and he was hyped that I was so into this because ultimately you need somebody from the inside to make it happen. Like he can't really operate by himself because he's just like this third party, third party um, organization. So I roped him in as well to be, because he was a total expert. So I kind of brought him into every meeting I had with the superintendent and he really provided legitimacy. So that was something I learned early on. I was like, okay, you got to have experts if you want to get things done. I think that's an important lesson. Yeah. Definitely. And, but then I also learned that like, okay, I thought, you know, I, I'll be honest, like at times I thought this wasn't going to work out. Like I, I was really hyped in the beginning and, and like in 2014. And then I ended up graduating college I think in 2015, or sorry, graduating high school in 2015. And I, I had, to, I, would, I had to make sure that somebody would continue this project while I was gone. Cause me not being physically in the district anymore, you know, we were at UCLA, I couldn't go and bother them physically. So I, I um, recruited people from my key club which was the club that I was president of. It was a community service organization at, um, at Venetia High School. And I recruited members from that to continue it while I was gone. So this idea of continuation was really important. Um, speaking at board meetings, but really more than anything, it's just being persistent. Like you, you bug somebody enough, they're going to be like, all right, they're fine. They'll capitulate. Like, you know, we emailed the superintendent over and over again. We were pretty aggressive. And, <laughs> I mean, luckily he was a super cool guy, very, very into it. So like, it wasn't super hard to convince him. It was more just like a matter of like, Hey, like, you know, this is a five and a half million dollar project. Like it's not small. You gotta like, it's not like Trump. Yeah. It's serious. You gotta build the business case for that. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, luckily with solar, it's not, it's, it's not hard to build a business case anymore. So at the time it was a little bit harder. Um, but there's a lot of grants they can get from the you know California government. There were some uh, bonds that, could be acquired. There were options, but it was more than matter than anything, more a matter of just educating them on what their options were and just showing them that this is important and this will actually help you down the line. I mean, this project is going to save them, like, I think it's over $5 million over the next 20 years uh, net. So it's like a big saving, cost savings, and it's a big benefit to the environment. And it was then that I also learned that, hey, like when it comes to environmental work that is, you know, there's, I should say sustainability work, 
it has to also usually be economically beneficial as well. Otherwise, people are not going to be um, really that supportive of it. Yeah, you know, that's the thing with operating within a capitalist society is if something doesn't at the very least sustain itself economically, then it simply doesn't make any sense. And so there needs to be some sort of model in place so that any kind of organization can sustain itself. 100%. And especially when it comes to working with like big bureaucratic like um, organizations that are, you know, publicly funded, like it's hard to make changes happen. And, uh, you know, sure, people, people say yeah, they want to be definitely. sustainable. The older, the older and the larger an organization. Yeah. People want to be sustainable, but what's that? People, people want to be sustainable, but it's, it's much more convincing if it's like impacting the bottom line positively. Yeah. It's more of a bonus in, in many cases. Yeah, pretty much. But it was a, you know, a, a great lesson to learn early on and I wouldn't have been able to learn it in school. That wouldn't have been possible. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Some things you can't learn in a classroom and that idea of persistence, a project that takes three and a half years to implement. That's pretty cool. And you made some real impact by installing those solar panels. I've seen them. Those things are freaking big. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of hard to believe. It's kind of hard to believe that it actually worked out. Honestly, like I, you know, there were definitely times where I thought it wasn't going to work out. And, um, but luckily having Tom, the leader of that nonprofit, he told me that, you know, man, like you got to be patient. I've seen this happen many times before with school districts. It's like a snowball where you basically got to keep pushing the snowball up the hill. It gets bigger and bigger and harder to push, but then eventually you get over the hill and you just let it, and then you just let it go down the hill and you don't have to give any, any energy into pushing it. So it just pushes it itself. That's basically what I did. I gave it the sort of, uh, initial push. And my team, yeah, I like that analogy. Yeah, and my my team did too. Like my team was was really cool, and like that's really important too. Having people that having people that are really into it, especially diverse team. It was like a we had some mom, you know, some parents involved, political people involved, you know, young people involved. It was the whole community was represented. But, yeah, I think that's important. You can't accomplish anything without involving the community, especially if it impacts everybody. Totally, and the most important thing. I mean, I, I just wish that. It was, you know, I'm sure a lot of students and people our age and younger than us as well are, you know, would be interested in doing these kind of things. They just don't know how. And mm -hmm. if it wasn't for me having this advisor, Tom, it would have been tough, like very tough for me to just figure it out on my own. So like, it's just how, it's just a matter of getting the resources, getting people connected. And, and I found, I found him through the internet, right? Like I wouldn't have been able to find him without the internet which is why I love the internet. <laughs> the internet allows me to find resources that I would never be able to find. I found about sustainable summer through the internet. Like it's just amazing. If you, if you really want to get connected with people, it's just, it's so easy. Yeah. No, the internet's an incredible tool. And I think that's one of the greatest benefits of it is just connecting people because, you know, the impact is really quite incredible. And it's obviously better if you can connect and meet in person, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, not like we can right now because of the coronavirus. Right. However, it's still powerful because you can meet people on the other side of the world and not even see them be able to have a great conversation over you know, Zoom or some other video chat platform. And it's also in part enabling us to do this super cool podcast yeah. where we can connect with all these different individuals in a very, yeah, in a very easy way. Totally. I mean, think about this. I was I read this article today. It was the Economist article, and it basically was saying how if this if this coronavirus happened two two decades ago, 
like we would be absolutely screwed. I mean, no <laughs> one would work. I believe it. Like it would just be complete death of the economy. Um, at least right now, a significant number of people can remotely work, which is a recent innovation. Yeah. Well, I mean, back in the day, I think that we just wouldn't have had the same shutdowns as we did right now. And the disease just would have ran rampant and it would have been a lot worse. Yeah. Because, yeah, we would have had a hard time coordinating the level of you know shutdowns that we've had as of today. Yeah, I mean, we're super lucky that I mean, I mean, bitter. It's obviously not lucky, but like, if this happened, really, like, you know, twenty or thirty years ago, it would have been really, really, really bad. Like, innovation as we see it today would not have existed, would not be existing. Like, I mean, from what I'm reading, like, things there's going to be less innovation during this sort of depressionary period, but we can be so much more resilient now, and it's just you know. Glad it didn't happen 20 years ago, man. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of crazy stuff, you know, is happening right now. And you know, we have the potential to, you know, turn it into an opportunity to really make some fundamental changes on a, you know, system that in many ways, uh, you know, isn't working effectively. And we see massive amounts of inequality in our country and, and the environment's being damaged. Uh, just some people are being left behind. And so mm-hmm. I think that this is a great opportunity for us as a society to sit back and really analyze these challenges and take a deep look at some of the problems that we have and be creative about paving a new way forward. And one of the things that excites me is even though many people – you know, are losing jobs is at the same time, a lot of people have more time on their hands. And there is an economic imbalance here that needs to be remedied because people need to be able to, you know, still make ends meet, put food on the table and sustain themselves and survive. However, if we can find a way to do that, then the time that people have on their hands is an opportunity for them to go ahead and pursue into, you know, other types of passions. And so that's what we're trying to do here with this podcast. And I would hope that we actually get more creativity out of people having this kind of time to invest in what they would like to do. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, I mean, time is the ultimate currency and we're definitely becoming richer with it, richer in time as the years go on with the internet and technology, technological innovation. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about your experiences growing up and, you know, that great project that you did at your high school. And let's talk a little bit about, you know, what you're working on now today, because I think that it's related in a sense, still working on sustainability initiatives. But I think that it's really cool that you decided to go and start a company after college and, you know, where you are, because you had some pretty high profile internships as well along the way, working at Tesla and Katera, the major building company, which, you know, potentially propose pretty high paying jobs post-college. And so do you want to talk a little bit about what you're working on and why you eventually went down that route, despite these other alternatives that seemingly were available to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it actually, interestingly enough, comes back to my realization of what my purpose is. (laughs) How fitting, right? Um, I've sort of, you know, and I know you've had this similar 
revelations in, in college of like, you know, when you're ending college, the adult life is, is nearing, you're, you're, you're nearing your time to be an adult, right? Started, you know, I started thinking like, okay, like there's no end to this. It's just forever until, until death. <laughs> so it's not like, oh, four more years of college. No, it's like four more years of being an adult. No, it's like, all right, what are we going to do? And I realized that, okay, what have, what have I been doing? Like, what have I been doing in the past during college and high school outside of school? Because that's ultimately my path. Like, that's ultimately what I really like to do. It's like my passions. And they've been, you know, starting projects to bring people together to solve problems. That's simply it. And these problems are those which relate to the environment and climate change. So I'm like, okay, like by me, I sort of analyzed my impact. I was like, okay, when I'm, at, when I'm at these internships, I'm doing like projects. Yes, they're rather minor. And I mean, can you compare them to a five and a half million dollar solar panel project? Absolutely not. And I was doing that in high school. So it's all about, for me, like, I realized that I have a tremendous amount of privilege being from California, being from the Bay Area. And I want to make the most use of that to bring the most value to the world and solve as many problems as I can. And I feel that I'm able to solve the most problems by starting initiatives on my own and bringing people together to solve them. Whereas if I were to work for a company, I really, I mean, yes, my life would be a lot easier probably. And it would be like less stressful and, and, and way less, uh, way less uncertain. But I wouldn't feel that I'm solving the the amount. I wouldn't feel like I'm kind of, you know, how do you say, realizing self, you know, self. I'm not going towards self actualization. You know, to bring it back to our first episode, <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm not really, totally realizing my full potential. And um, it comes back to again, like my parents have been super cool, and they they're very flexible, and they realize what I you know what I like to do, and. And so the company I'm working on now is essentially my attempt at accelerating the um, economy toward one that is more circular. Circular economy being one that is uh, taking waste that we produce and making use of that waste. We currently live in a fairly linear linear uh, economic society. So you make a you know you make an iPhone, the iPhone you use the iPhone, so you you, know, you buy it and use it, and then it goes straight to the landfill. Now, Apple is trying to do a little bit more circular stuff by reusing some of the parts, but like it's mostly just thrown away and that's not sustainable for the future. I think that climate change is, it, I don't think, I know climate change is directly uh, related to food waste, which can be uh, totally used for other purposes, will lower greenhouse gas emissions and bring more value to our um, our resources. So that's sort of the the, the, the passion that I want to follow. And I'm starting with used coffee grounds. So making various products out of used coffee grounds. It's a very ample source of waste. In America, we produce over three and a half million pounds of stuff. Uh, sorry, three and a half billion pounds of stuff every year. Wow. And just in San Francisco alone, every year we produce over two million, uh, just from coffee shops, two million pounds. And this, you know, this has enough oil in it. Uh, it's kind of coffee oil to make like hundreds of thousands of uh, products with this is currently com being completely underutilized in fact is negatively affecting the environment because it's turning into methane and co2 in the landfills so my whole kind of philosophy is i'm, I'm trying i want to solve problems that aren't being that aren't being tackled so that's that's kind of my thesis
Yeah, I think that's incredible. I think that you're really onto something there. If there really is such a high supply of all these coffee grounds and there's you know value to be had there, some sort of oil material, and it's useful for all these other applications, then it makes a lot of sense to you know go and extract that and turn it into something else that's valuable. So I think it's a great business model and a very worthy one too, because you know you're also upcycling waste, and it sounds like you have the higher mission of just building some awareness about these trends in general, right? So is, is that something that you're also uh, trying to do? And if so, like, how are you trying to build that, that type of awareness with this business? Absolutely. Yeah, I think education is half the half of it, right? Just because, I mean, in order, in order to make change, you have to educate people. So, I mean, I, I felt the same way about my solar project, right? I was like, okay, I make this solar project, but then how do I educate people to, like, care? Because if we don't all purchase with, if we don't all live and, 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 and purchase things with the intent of, of making a positive impact on the world or rather in avoiding the negative impacts, the wasteful impacts, then no change is really going to occur. So with my solar panel project, just to bring it back to that, like I, I, I went and spoke at different high schools after the fact and told them about how I did it, tried to get people at other high schools interested in, in, in supporting them with their projects. Um, I think that's really important. But to answer your question about how am I going to incorporate um, education into my own products, that's a great question. And I'm, tr- I'm actually currently trying to answer. Uh, I think it's very much about the branding and the marketing. Because I think that's, that is it, is branding and marketing, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's definitely a huge component of it is just the messaging of the company. And so it sounds like that's kind of one of the next things that you're going to go ahead and, and focus on. I know that, you know, just from my experiences working with you, you're a great communicator and educator on stuff. And uh, I'm sure that you're going to be able to, you know, figure something out that gets the message across as long as you pay it the attention that it really deserves. Yeah, I agree. And here's the thing also, like, I feel like in life, like, you know, people, you know, you and I are both doing things that are, you know, rather a little unconventional and we're not following the, the straight edge route of just going to get a job. And I think that like my, my thesis is like, okay, if something is, is important enough, it's, it's worth, it's worth trying even if you fail, because what we're both doing is, or what we're, you know, what we're both doing is, is if, if successful would have profound impacts. So it's not just for money, right? Like if you're motivated just by money, then it's like, even if you succeed, cool, you just got yourself a bunch of wealth. I mean, sure, you provide a value to some capacity, but not always. Um, and with, uh, with what we're doing with this kind of sustainable social uh, impact models, it's, that's the way you make the most change. I think so. I think that organizations, companies have an incredible... Uh, capacity for creating change. However, many times they you know favor profit over actual impact. And so if we restructure that framework and rather than thinking of a company simply as a money-making machine, but as an organization that creates social good and money is simply the input that's mm-hmm. necessary for fueling that contribution to society, then I think that we'll be moving toward a world where people are really looking out for each other more and the collective um, rather than you know being selfish in many ways and consuming resources and taking advantage of others. 
Yeah, absolutely. And but something I'm also I'm also considering. I've been considering this lately. Is like why, like, I know social impact and uh, social entrepreneurship has become an increasingly growing field over the past ten to twenty years. But I guess my question is like, why now versus like forty years ago, fifty years ago? Like, are we any are we more prosperous? Like now such that we can start thinking about others and not ourselves as much like i'm trying to figure out like why are we the ones sort of trying to spearhead a lot of this to go even more to dig one level deeper i think it is it's just connection i think yeah. realizing that we're a global society we're you know i mean we're, we're totally global i mean people are talking about going to other planets right becoming a multiplanetary species if we're a multiplanetary species at some point, you won't say, oh, I'm American. You'll say, oh, I'm from, I'm an earthling. You know, it's really it's kind of far down the line, but I mean, right. who knows? You know, it's like you associate yourself with the planet. It, it becomes more of a, you know, we're expanding our sense of us, I think. Yeah, it's really quite an incredible, powerful thing. And so, you know, I think that we're living in a great time. There's a lot of really fascinating things going on. And, of course, we have challenges. We have this coronavirus pandemic going on right now, climate change in front of us, but we also have arguably uh, more capabilities than ever before. And so, you know, I think it's a really interesting point in history and it's exciting to roll it out. So, you know, we're, we're young. We have a lot in front of us still, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, that would be really sick. Fingers crossed, man. <laughs> it'd be really great to live through. I mean, it'd be really powerful to live through the, you know, the next 60, 50, 60, 70 years to see what it's like. Cause I mean, no one can predict what things will be like in 70 years. Like, I don't care who you are, man, it's going to be insane. <laughs> yeah. Things, things are moving incredibly quickly. Well, you know, we're getting to the end of uh, this podcast episode, but I wanted to incorporate a couple of wild card questions here at the end that we can kind of wrap up with. How does that sound? It sounds great. Sweet. Okay, so the first one um, is: are, are you a student of history, Aaron? Are you familiar with uh, you know historical events? I mean, some. Which <laughs> which ones? Um, I, I'm wondering who your favorite historical figure is. Who you know maybe uh, you learn something by learning about them. Wow, there's so many. Um, I mean, off the top of my head. Uh, who people who I really respect historically, I really love, I mean, I think Benjamin Franklin was a fascinating character. I know he, I really appreciated the way he was just such like a, a polymath. He was able to do so many things. I think he, he created the first, I mean, of course, like he was arguably one of the first people to be involved with electricity. Um, right. Uh, yeah. As he well was. as I think he created the first like fire department. In, uh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I think it was either the fire department or like the, um, one of the kind of like, you know, I think it was, yeah, fire department or, or hospital, something like that. And, you know, he, he he's just like one of these guys just like to, cre you know, creates, he's a creator. And I think that, you know, he was also, you know, he came from Europe, right? And he, I believe so. He came from Europe. He came here. I mean, I remember, I remember there was a, there's a documentary about him. Um, there used to be a TV show that was about him and uh, it was on HBO. And he just seemed like a really like incredible guy that, just like was really social, but also super creative and also an inventor. And that's kind of who I, who I aspire to be. 
I think a lot of these writers are incredible. I really love um, like William Faulkner, people that just people who are incredibly creative. I, I really look up to um, William Faulkner wrote some of the best books I'd argue uh, of the 20th century as I lay dying was one of my favorite books ever. And just so brilliant. And I just think that like people who are incredible at writing, I, I really, really look up to who are able to sort of paint pictures in your mind as a reader, as such a profound way of expressing and transferring information. That's super cool. Considering that you're also an engineer, <laughs> that you appreciate writing so much. Yeah. I think, I think like being, I think like, yeah, I, I really look up to people who are like, I look up to both sides, the artist, the artistic people like William Faulkner, but also the inventors. I think invention takes creativity. I think people who are really, you know, what's interesting. I read this book. Um, it was by um, Adam, uh, Adam Grant. And uh, he's like a social psychologist. And he basically said that, um, yeah, he said that like people who are Nobel laureates tend to be really artistic there's something about being creative and art and about being creative in a, sort of an invention background that, that really correlates well with being artistic and a good critical thinker, which I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but it's pretty interesting. Interesting. Like using both sides of your brain, essentially. Yeah. So like he did a study and looked at all these Nobel laureates um, and I'm talking about Nobel um, you know, science and they were very much like, I'm not sure how he compared like them to their, their, to their counterparts who didn't receive the prizes. But like, if you study like their, their interests and their passions, like a lot of them were like on the side, like writers on the side, like poets, artists, things like that. Yeah. No, that's incredible. I mean, I, I resonate with that as well because I write a good amount and I also read a tremendous amount yet. I also studied engineering and, and science like you. And so I've always been interested in all of these different areas of you know, education. And I think that, you know, to each their own is that some people like to specialize more in certain, you know, aspects. But for me, I like to see how it all comes together. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I like drawing those connections between seemingly unrelated things to create something new. And time and time again, when I go and, and start something that's that's new and fresh or, you know, get involved in some type of uh, initiative that's, that's working on a you know, new objective, then I find it's the ability to bring things together that really makes it successful. And, you know, you can never accomplish anything within a single, you know, anything uh, in this, you know, world that I think is super substantial um, with any single aspect because, you know, as much of, you know, engineering and creation that we can do, at the end of the day, it's still all about people. You know, we have to deliver value to people and, you know, help those individuals that are living in our world. And so you have to bridge that gap somehow. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, I think being able to make connections is kind of the root of all innovation. It's innovation is connecting seemingly disparate topics. I'm not sure if you've heard of, I don't want to drag this on for too long, but there's this guy named John von Neumann. He's arguably the best, most famous like mathematical prodigy of the 20th century. He, he's just an insane, insanely accomplished person. 
and he was the one he 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 did he made amazing uh, progress in computer architecture. You can ask your computer science friends like uh, von Neumann architecture is like something they study in school. He also developed the the method of the uh, the way the nuclear bomb would actually blow up. I mean, wow. Whether that's good or bad, I mean, yeah. You know, you got to it's amazing that he could just be doing so many different things. He he made he made progress in DNA research and genetics. Huh. Like he just taught, he focused on so many different fields and he just drew he drew analogies and comparisons and that's way that's the uh, reason he was able to be I mean, beyond being just like brilliant at heart um and having an incredible memory, he was able to draw these connections. Totally. Yeah. I mean, one of the people that I look up to in history is actually Leonardo da Vinci because, you know, he was able to do something similarly. I mean, came up with incredible inventions that weren't actually realized until hundreds of years later. But, you know, there he was thinking up early planes and submarines. At the same time, he was an artist and documented biological species, um, including, you know, birds as well as plants, um, and also painted the Mona Lisa. Yeah. And so, you know, a really wide breadth of, uh, of aspects. And, you know, I think that what was consistent across everything he was doing was, I mean, sure, a level of excellence but a level of creativity. And, you know, I really value, you know, that level of creativity because I think that's what being human is really all about. And in a world that's becoming increasingly automated, I think that it's our human creativity and really art and emotion that is going to stand out and differentiate everything. That's what's going to make life worth living. And so, you know, I really want to see us continue to expand and, you know, you know, potentially explore it even you know, further than we ever have before the arts. Um, because I feel that for a certain period of time, our capitalist society you know, moved away some art forms because they weren't as incentivized by a structure where creating capital was, was really important. I mean, if you look at ancient you know, Chinese civilization, they were creating the most intricate and beautiful pottery and statues and gongs, uh, all of these things. I mean, if you look at the Forbidden Army, I mean, that's just incredible. And we're not seeing anything you know, quite like that anymore. Um, no, you know, not, not huge monuments. We're not building any new Mount Rushmore's. <laughs> and uh, I wonder why not, because I think that it could still be pretty cool. I think it's a matter of of the culture. I think it's a function of culture. If culture, you know, so much incredible art was created in the Renaissance. It's these kind of period. It's these periods of of innovation in different fields. You know, over the past twenty or thirty, you know, hundred years, we've seen incredible technological innovation. That's where all the honestly, a lot of the creative people have gone. Um, mm. Create what we're. I mean, to, to be able to communicate through a through a device that you know 100 years ago didn't exist, really, and, and anywhere near. To, you know, the computers were no, nowhere near as advanced as they are today, and that's just a function of creativity to get here. I think that that's where the creativity really was. And yeah, I think you're. I think it's right. I think you're right. Like as we have seen, we're hitting sort of a limit soon on the level of innovation we can continue with our technology. You know, where's that creativity going to go? And mm -hmm. I think art will potentially see a, you know, a bit of a renaissance. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. It, it could be a really cool time. So uh, that sounds good, Aaron. I mean, it was an interesting conversation. So you know, thanks for taking the time. It's a beautiful Saturday. I couldn't imagine a better way to spend it. So, um, yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. Had a great talk. And hey, all that topic on the topic of art would be really interesting to get somebody on this podcast who is an artist and kind of how to draw some, you know, draw some insights from their motivations and, and their kind of a journey to find their purpose. I love that idea. Yeah, I think there are so many cool people that we can bring on the podcast. And that's probably what we'll do next. Uh, you know, for all you listeners, this is the point where Aaron and I are going to go and start drafting out who we're going to bring on our podcast and really get into their exploration of what purpose is really all about. And so thanks for sticking with us in these uh, couple of interviews of, you know, both Aaron and myself, as well as our setup episode to really establish the foundation for what is the study of purpose. And now it's time to embark on the journey. Looking forward to it, everyone. Thank you.